Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we'll be looking this morning at just that first verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray for your help now as we come to study your Word. Though the passage that we are looking at is short, yet it is rich and it is full. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might understand the treasures that are contained here and that we might give you glory as we behold them. Amen. Well, last week, as we considered some uh, introductory thoughts about this letter, we noted that the situation into which this letter was written was one of opposition and discouragement. Timothy, uh, still a relatively young man, struggling as pastor of the church in Ephesus, ministering as he was in the face of rising cultural hostility and the devastating effects of false teaching that had come into the church right across the region. Paul's missionary travels had been tremendously exciting and had been full of incredible victories. Now, yes, there had been some setbacks for sure. Paul had found his fair share, maybe more than his fair share, of hostile crowds, like that crowd we noted last week of silversmiths in Ephesus that, that led that riot in response to Paul's preaching of the gospel. In Timothy's own hometown of Lystra, Paul, Acts 14 tells us, was stoned unconscious and left for dead because of his preaching of the gospel. But the mark, I think, the more general mark of Paul's ministry and his missionary travels was one of tremendous excitement as the gospel advanced and seemed to abound. The story of Acts is a story of lives transformed. It's a story of churches established, churches made up, as Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us, of Jew and Gentile, once the most bitter of enemies, now reconciled in Christ, united in the same congregation, delighting together in the salvation that they share in Jesus Christ. As we read through Acts, there's a sense that comes through the pages of the world being turned upside down. I think if we just had Acts, it would be easy for us to be, I think, post-millennial, to see the gospel just continue to progress, to see the church continue to grow as a seemingly unstoppable force, seeing more and more of the world coming to faith in Christ, leading to that millennium of peace and righteousness on the earth. Despite the setbacks and the opposition that Paul and those with him encountered as they took the gospel throughout that Mediterranean region, in Paul's first three missionary journeys, it looked as if things were just going to go from good to better. The forces of evil, yes, hostile, but ultimately retreating in the face of an ever-advancing gospel. But by the time we get to the epistles, we realize that there was tremendous blowback in the years following Acts 28. Romans is possibly the only letter that we have in our 
New Testaments that was not written to put out a fire that had arisen within a congregation. The letters that we have in our New Testament, whether written by Paul or Peter or John or, or Jude, are almost all written as emergency communications uh, designed by their authors to steer the recipients away from the rocks of temptation or heresy that are threatening to make shipwreck of the faith of these new Christians. One of the great dangers that faced the first century churches was the rise of false teachers that came in the wake of Paul's ministry, that came under the guise of bringing to these Christians an advanced Christianity, that came under the guise of trying to bring these Christians on to a, to a maturity, but was, in reality, teaching them to believe a gospel that was no gospel at all. That's what Paul tackles so forcefully in his letter to the Galatians, isn't it? Right at the beginning, Paul comes in dispensing with a lot of his usual niceties. Paul just comes in hard. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, though there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or we can think about the so-called super-apostles that came to the church in Corinth. Do you remember how Paul described them, how Paul wrote about them in 2 Corinthians 11? Picking up at verse 12, he says, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What was happening in the wake of Paul's ministry, in the wake of these missionary journeys, was, I think, what Jesus described in Luke 11. He said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Peter seems to allude to that very saying of Jesus when he describes the false teachers in 2 Peter 2. Reading from verse 17, he says, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This was the situation that Timothy was ministering in. This tremendous blowback that was coming in the wake of Paul's ministry, both cultural opposition and false teaching rising up in the church. For Timothy and for the other men like him who took up the mantle of ministry after the apostles, the road was long and hard, and there seemed to be enemies on every side. And as we said last week for Timothy, we can discern from this letter that that long and hard road had worn him down. He was discouraged. Even we said we might in our terms even describe him as as burnt out, just an exhausted man beginning to wonder about his ministry. And this letter written by Paul to encourage him and strengthen him for the ministry that still remains. But it's important, having said all of that, that before we get into the substance of this letter, that we stop here right in the beginning and see the significance of why Paul opens his letter like he does here. These little introductory verses are found at the beginning of all of Paul's letters. And I think, if we're honest, we're often tempted just to skip over them. I'm tempted to do that when I'm I'm preaching. Many of my sermon series in Paul's letters haven't dealt in any great depth with the little opening greetings that Paul includes here. And I dare say you're, you're probably the same as you do your Bible readings and you come to these letters, and your calendar says you're to read 2 Timothy 1, you likely just breeze past the first two verses in order to get to the, to the heart of the letter uh, in the verses that, that follow on. We have a, a, some modicum of knowledge about ancient literary forms, even if that just comes from the notes in your study Bible. You know that these opening remarks are are really just a modified form of the customary threefold opening of Greco-Roman letters. Right? So just as we would put the date and then dear so-and-so and conclude with uh, yours sincerely or something like that, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they structured their letters like this. It actually makes a lot more sense than how we do our letters. They told you who it was coming from right at the beginning, whereas we have to flip over to find out who it's from, and then flip back to find out what they're saying. Their letters just followed the standard format, the name of the sender, the recipient, and the word of greeting. The danger is that that we find as much meaning in this as we would in our dear so-and-so and in our yours sincerely. But we really need to pause and notice that packed into these two little formal verses here, just one sentence in the original Greek, is actually the whole theology that this letter will go on to expound and apply. Look first at just how Paul describes himself here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, we might not think much of that, almost goes without saying, But we realize that there's actually something tremendously significant to that when we realize that Paul does not identify himself in the same way 
uh, in every letter that he writes. So Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants, really slaves of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Titus 1.1, a longer one. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith in God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Or Philemon, perhaps the shortest of all, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. You understand, Paul doesn't just mix these up for the sake of variety. Each of these personal introductions has a particular bearing on what Paul will go on and write. We don't have time, obviously, to go through all of them, but just think of a few examples. In Ephesians, Paul is going to put a lot of emphasis on the sovereignty of God in salvation and building his church. And so he opens, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In his letter to the Galatians, in which he will fight powerfully for the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone, he opens, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul clearly introducing the monergistic work of God that he will go on and expound and apply in that letter, that great theme of Galatians, that God alone works to secure our redemption in Christ. Right, and we could go on through every one of those. From the very first word of each of these letters, Paul has an eye on leading his readers to behold the magnificent work of God in building his church and sustaining his people. And it's no different here. What Paul wants Timothy to lodge in his mind at the very beginning of this letter is that first, Paul is an apostle, and secondly, that he is so by the will of God. And that is going to be particularly important, especially as Paul will go on and tackle the widespread apostasy that is happening across Asia as people turn away from him and turn away from his doctrine. For Paul to be an apostle means that his teaching carries with it an extraordinary weight of authority. The IVP, New Bible Dictionary, describes apostles like this. It says, in the New Testament, the word apostolos is, above all, applied absolutely to the group of men who held the supreme dignity in, uh, who held the supreme dignity in the primitive church. Since apostello seems frequently uh, to refer to men who are sent with a particular purpose, as distinct from the neutral pempo, 
the force of apostolos is probably one commissioned. It is implied by Christ. So these men, these apostles, are men who hold a unique office at the establishment of the new covenant church, a temporary office that bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament, men through whom fresh revelation is brought from God to establish a church built solidly, not just now on the foundation of God's promises, but now on the foundation of God's promises fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. These were men, extraordinary men, set apart by God to preach the gospel, to proclaim the orthodox truth about Christ's saving work, to bear His unique authority as they declared what He had done in His life, death, and resurrection. And that's the second part of that opening clause, isn't it? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The purpose of Paul's apostleship, the reason why Christ had sent Paul, was inseparably wrapped up with the proclamation of new life in Christ. See, by, by introducing himself in this way, it's as if Paul is saying that he is inseparably tied to the gospel he preaches. He is saying you cannot separate the man from the message. Paul's whole identity, his whole self-conception was wrapped up in the gospel, in the new life that is found in Christ. And that little phrase, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, can really be read in two directions, should really be read in two directions. On the one hand, it is the very nature of the gospel that Paul preached. It was the message that he bore to a dying world, that there is new life, true life, abundant life to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. But it's also a statement that is very reminiscent of what Paul says of himself in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a phrase, as someone put it, that springs from Paul's constant wonder at the catastrophic encounter near the gates of Damascus. You understand why this opening greeting is so powerful. This opening introduction of Paul is so powerful. Here is Timothy, discouraged and downcast. His mentor is in prison. The gospel he preaches is being attacked. The world he lives in is growing in its violent opposition to Christians and to the church. And in the face of it all, Paul says to Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, he says to him right at the beginning, understand this about me, Timothy, my whole life is wrapped up in Christ my Savior. Paul gives Timothy right at the opening of this letter is a word that, that is designed to recalibrate Timothy's heart, a word that is designed to lift his weary head, a word that right from the off, is written to reorient him from the difficulties and the sorrows of life in this fallen world and to remember that for Paul, Jesus Christ is his all in all. 
And remember, this imprisonment at the end of the fourth missionary journey is much different from the one we see Paul enduring at the end of Acts. There, as we noted last week, there is a sense that Paul expects to be released. But here in this letter, there's, there's none of that. Paul will go on later and say in chapter 4 that the time for his departure has come. As Paul sits in this prison in Rome, Nero's violent, cruel, brutal persecution of Christians is not something abstract, but something that Paul sees coming for himself as he sees himself. Chapter 4, verse 6, is being poured out as a drink offering. But even in the face of all this, Paul now bearing the intense heat of Nero's persecution, Paul facing that heartbreaking reality of, of those throughout Asia forsaking him and the doctrine that he preached in the face of it all, this acute suffering. How does Paul see himself? Not fundamentally here as a prisoner of Christ, as he calls himself in Ephesians 3.1. Not fundamentally as a prisoner for Christ, as he calls himself in the opening of Philemon. Fundamentally, how Paul sees himself and how he wants Timothy to see him is as a man whose whole life is wrapped up in and defined by the salvation that he has received from Christ on that Damascus road, that salvation that he has given his life literally to proclaim to others. It was, of course, a, an encouragement to Timothy. It was a, a reassurance to his child in the faith that Paul was not downcast and discouraged. Certainly, he was not rejoicing over the departure of so many. Right? He does not rejoice, verse 15, to see the multitude in Asia turn away from him. It brings him no happiness to have close companions like Demas walk away from the faith that he once professed. It brought no glee to Paul's heart to consider the tortuous death that laid ahead of him. But as hard as all of it was, Christ was his anchor. Christ was his joy. And so Timothy could take solace in that. Paul introduces him like this to immediately calm the troubled heart of his child in the faith and to show him that he himself was not troubled by all that was going on. But there's also a challenge in here to Timothy. If this is how Paul is feeling, facing heartbreak upon heartbreak, facing imprisonment, facing the prospect of a cruel death, then how much more should Timothy understand his own circumstances through this lens? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, isn't it? If Paul could see his life like this, then how much more could Timothy, how much more should Timothy see his life like this? But what Paul is saying to Timothy here in just this opening phrase, what he's doing in setting the paradigm for the letter like this, is he is reminding Timothy of the nature of their relationship, and he is saying to him, follow me, Timothy. As your father in the faith, imitate me, bear my family likeness as you now come in my wake and as you too bear the sorrows of ministry. You, Timothy, you be encouraged. 
You, Timothy, you set your eyes on Jesus. You, Timothy, understand that the greatest, most important, central thing about who you are and life in this fallen world is that you belong to Christ, that He has called you to Himself, that He has given you new life in Him, and that He has called you to go and proclaim that life. Everything else that is going on around, it's noise compared to that central truth that is to be His anchor. It's the same call that comes to us this morning, isn't it? And how to apply this letter is, is one of the tricky things about it. This letter, the second letter of, of Paul to Timothy, is an intensely personal letter. It's, it's one of these letters that we read, and we're not quite sure we should be reading this. It seems like opening someone's private correspondence. There is a lot that is written just between Paul and Timothy, and it seems so situationally specific. Right? Some letters we can just throw ourselves in, some of the more general letters that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to the Romans. We're not in those congregations, of course, but we're never that far removed from them. But we're just not in Timothy's position. We're not there situationally, but we're not there relationally. We are not beloved of Paul as Timothy is beloved of Paul. And so the application of this letter can be a little tricky at times. Much of it will come from, broad, from general principles that we will draw and apply. But here, the application is actually quite straightforward. The challenge that is here for Timothy is also here for us. The question that is implied here, the challenge that is implied here is one that goes out to you this morning. Is this how you see yourself? Is this how you understand yourself in this present world, in your workplace, in your marriage, in your community? Are you wrapped up in Christ, your identity anchored in Christ, your fortunes understood as unshakably wrapped up in your salvation and the hope of the gospel held out to a dying world. As you look out into the world, as you walk through the troubles of these days, what is the overriding thought in your mind? Is it how hard this is? Or is it wonder at your salvation? Is it, is it that Christ has given you new life and commissioned you to take that new life to others who are dead in their trespasses and sins? Is, is that what shapes and directs your heart? Is that the paradigm through which you see the world and understand and interpret the fortunes that befall you, whether good or bad? And it's easy for it not to be, isn't it? We get caught up in the wonder of our salvation when we are converted, but over time it fades from view. As more seemingly pressing concerns come in. Once you were amazed, amazed that Christ could save a wretch like you. Once there was a day when you sang loudly and boldly, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It was the most amazing truth to you. It exploded your mind. It, 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 it exploded in your heart. It was, it was the greatest thing, and you could barely contain from skipping when you thought about your salvation. But now the edge is worn off. 
trouble with kids. It's coming, and it's loud, and it's concerning. Or your, your marriage has, has run into real difficulties, and it's, it's every day. You wake up, and it's every day. Or the worries about the way this world is going, just crowds in. It's every time you switch on the TV, it's every news page you look at on the internet, it's just all, it's everything everybody you know talks about these days. And it's loud, and it pulses in your ears, what is going to become of this world. And they come in like an abrasive, and they take the edge off of that early zeal. Or maybe, maybe you're one of these people who have so-called unexciting testimonies. You're, you're a cradle Presbyterian. You, you, you were born into the church. You were baptized as an infant. You were raised in Sunday school. You're your parents did family worship with you, and you've just never known a time when you did not know Christ is your Savior. There was no Damascus Road event. It's all you've ever known. And it's easy then for it just to become ordinary. Your, your salvation, just another part of who you are, and just another part of who you've always been. But here is Paul, dramatically converted writing to Timothy, raised in a faithful home. And in the simple word of introduction, Paul challenges and says that regardless of how we have come to know Christ, this has to be the overriding thought in our hearts. That above and below and behind and before all else is the knowledge that we are Christ's that we belong to Him, heart and mind and soul and strength, that we have been granted new life in Him by the will of God, and that we have been commissioned not as apostles, but still as emissaries of this kingdom, taking that hope of new life, sharing it with any and all that will listen, that, that we might be agents of someone's salvation. You see, when we see it like that, when we understand ourselves like that, then everything changes. And we can face even the greatest of obstacles with another worldly peace. We can be encouraged in the midst of great opposition. And we can hold fast to that gospel, regardless of its cost. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to very purposefully set our minds and our hearts again on the wonder of our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes of communion, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why would Jesus command you to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him? It's because he knows you forget. It's because he knows how the wonder of your salvation wanes. But he is good. And he is kind. And so he has set this table before us, and he bids us to come and remember again 
to remember all that He has done for us, to remember that in, in Him we have been granted this new life. And of course, the remembering that we do this morning, it's not just an intellectual act. What Jesus calls us to do at this table is not just recollect our salvation, but He bids us to come and lay hold of it again, to come back to Him again, to meditate again on the wonders of our salvation. In a few moments, as the elders are distributing the elements, we'll do it in silence, as is our habit. And that silence, contemplate again what it means for Christ to have saved you from the death of your sin. Contemplate again what it means for Christ to have granted you life in Him. Lay a hold of Christ again by faith and give thanks to God that you are who you are by His grace. If you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Christ, then let me invite you to consider all the riches that are to be found in Him. We ask that you do not take the bread and the cup as they are distributed. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 11 to say that for you to eat and drink would be for you to eat and drink judgment on yourself. What we do here is solemn and serious. It's an act of worship. It's a real communion between God and His people. But in the silence, let me encourage you to consider your sin. To consider how that sin has alienated you from God, how it has made you liable to His just punishment. Consider also the mercy and the grace that is offered to you in Christ. And come with us and find life in Him. Amen.